are listening to Neurosalience, the OHBM podcast. Welcome to the Organization for Human Brain Mapping Neurosalience podcast. I'm your host, Peter Banatini. Here, I interview brain scientists of all types and discuss their work, as well as their latest developments, issues, and controversies in the field of brain mapping. Today, my guest is Denis Lebihan. He's a clinician and physicist and a relentless innovator in the field of MRI and fMRI since the late 80s. And also, as we hear in this podcast, is a very broad, deep, and highly creative thinker who remains passionate about his work. Denis is currently professor at Neurospin in Orsay, France, and spends uh, time as a guest professor at the University of Kyoto and the National Institutes of Physical Sciences in Okazaki, both in Japan. Denis has achieved international recognition for his truly fundamental contributions to the development of diffusion MRI, diffusion tensor MRI, and the concept of intervoxel incoherent motion uh, to image perfusion. It's actually the B in his name from which the ubiquitous B factor in diffusion comes from. He has more recently demonstrated the ability to image brain activation related diffusion coefficient changes. Denis completed his training in medicine and physics in Paris. He received his doctorate in medicine in 1984 and his doctorate in physics in 1987. He's a full member of the French Academy of Sciences, the Academy of Technologies, the Academy of Pharmacy, and is a corresponding member of the National National Academy of Medicine. For myself, his early work suggesting that intervoxel incoherent motion was sensitive to perfusion in the brain played a major role in inspiring my own journey to image brain function with MRI. In this podcast, we revisit this history and we talk a little bit about his work as it evolved over the years and his discoveries and developments as they continued on. And we also talk about his recent work on on modeling brain function. He's sort of foraying into, into modeling and he's come up with some very interesting and creative models. And he's actually even writing a book on that right now. So I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. Okay, well, thank you, uh, Denis Lebihan, for coming on our podcast. It's a it's quite an honor to have you. And uh, you know, we've known each other since the very beginnings of of fMRI. I think we first uh, uh, interacted. In the early 90s, when, when fMRI was just beginning, and I think I knew of your work uh, even beforehand, and I was, and we'll maybe get into that uh, in the discussion, uh, you know, as you, you know, put forth your model on uh, intervoxel incoherent motion and, and, and went from there, and uh, you've been sort of pushing the field throughout your career. And so I just want to start out with the beginning, just looking at your far distant background. Did you have any sort of early experiences or, or mentors that influenced your trajectory in your research and, and how you got started in that sense? Well, okay. First, uh, thanks, Peter, for inviting me. Uh, it's a great honor to share my uh, experience. I feel old now <laughs> because I have to dig well in the past. But yeah, of course, I had... Uh, Mentor, I would say my my first mentors, if in if I can say that, I are my, my parents. Uh, they not not intellectually about my my research, but they were uh, work, uh, working uh, in a factory, 
but they believed uh, that I should learn. So they they paid for a subscription in, in the municipal library. So I would go there once a week. And by curiosity, because I, I was offered for Christmas when I was about eight or nine years old, chemist uh, box. <laughs> so this is how I was hooked to science. And uh, the box, I mean, was not enough for me. So I went to read all the books on chemistry on the shelf. And when I had finished with that, I look at uh, on the next slide. And that was, uh, uh, let's say, weather forecasting. And I read all the books. Then I went to, to photography, to electronics. In fact, I had, I built a radio uh, re receiver <laughs> by myself when I, I was a kid. And so this this is my, my first mentor is uh, the local library where I learned almost everything by myself. Maybe I'll talk later about weather forecasting, but this is how I got hooked to, to physics. Yeah. Then later on, I was not sure uh, if I would go to neurosurgery, which was my, my, my aim, or physics, because I loved physics so much. And it was painful for me to make a decision. So I decided to go to medical school, but after one year, it was very boring. So <laughs> <laughs> I went to a physics degree, so BSMS, to my thesis. And at some point, I was a resident and I was also working on my physics thesis in time sharing. I was very lucky to meet. We had a trip to CERN in Geneva. And, uh, and then I, I met a great scientist and um, I was especially impressed by Sharpak, who, who later, later got a Nobel Prize, but he was working on medical applications of uh, physics. And he said, given your background, please don't switch to physics, stay at, uh, at the top, at the frontier between biology or medicine and uh, physics. And in fact, that's exactly what I have tried to do yes. as the best I could, I, I hope, but yeah. this was the, the key advice. Then I have been extremely lucky because on, at the beginning of my residency, I met uh, a, a neuroradiologist, Professor Cavanis at that time. Yes. I remember very well, it was in 1980. And he said, well, you are uh, trained as a physicist. Could you tell me what NMR is about? <laughs> <laughs> well, why are you studying NMR? He said, because it seems that we might be able to make images with that. I had no idea about that. And this is how I started to be involved in, uh, in the French first, very first MRI system. So he, he was responsible for checking the medical potential of MRI. And so there was a French company called CGR, which was located uh, not far from Eurospin, in fact, in Buc, which is now a GE headquarters because GE bought CGR at some point. But so I, I was introduced to this facility, CGR, and I had access to the machines. And this is where I started uh, diffusion MRI. That was in 1985, 84, 85. And the next, and the other mentor, which was very important for me, was uh, Professor De Georges, because I know in another semester of my residency, uh, I went to neurosurgery because that was, after all, my goal. And uh, I don't want to say he, he discouraged me, <laughs> but he said, even what you are doing, I think you will waste your time as a neurosurgeon. So I was afraid he was very kind to say, well, you are not a good neurosurgeon <laughs> and you should do something else. But no, no, he said, no, no, you are doing well, but you will be on call uh, every three days and uh, it's a waste. So they, then I was completely sure and with MRI coming, I mean, at the right time for me, it was a perfect gift to combine 
biology, medicine, and physics. So these are my, my mentors. Yeah, I mean, that's actually really, I mean, that's, I've, I remember myself sort of struggling in some way against, you know, to either, you know, medical school or, or like you said, pure physics. Being at that interface is, is I find, right, exactly, where, yeah, where yeah. things happen. In my case, it was really pure physics because my, my uh, training was in uh, particle physics <laughs> yeah. and, and theoretical physics. So it was not uh, imaging. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, trying to find, you know, physics sort of permeates everything and trying to find where it permeates is, is seems like where you get the, a lot of good pay dirt. And, and All right. let's go into diffusion imaging. Uh, and this is obviously where you made uh, a massive impact uh, early in your career. And, you know, as I, you know, looking at the history, you know, the, the, the concept, I guess, of diffusion was, uh, of, of imaging diffusion was around, you know, I guess since the, the 60s with Siskel and Tanner. And of course, then there was NMR, but you actually, so you actually made the first diffusion images, right? I mean, as far as uh, that's concerned. So how did that, how, what was that process? In fact, yeah, it's it's a funny story. Um, as I said, I, I was working in the CGR factory where I had the 0.35 slime <laughs> right system. And one of the, um, of the radiologist, uh, pediatrist uh, radiologist said, you know, in, in the liver, uh, we are not sure sometimes when we see a lesion, if it is an angioma or a tumor. And of course, the treatment is completely different. There was no contrast agent at the time. Yeah. And I thought, I, I knew the work of, um, of diffusion in the past. And to myself, I said, if I have a way to, to measure diffusion in the liver, in the tumor or in the lesion, I would expect that in, in um, angioma, Water molecules will will diffuse very fast, while in in a solid tumor, diffusion will be uh, slower. So I, I knew the literature. And in fact, the, most of the literature started back in the fifties to fight diffusion. D- diffusion was the enemy because <laughs> diffusion <laughs> was was destroying the quality of the of the signal. So yes. Han and Kapiusel designed ways to eliminate diffusion. Yes. Then Eschkal and Tanner Tanner came. And uh, reversed the idea said, well, diffusion might be interesting. So they developed the famous Teshkal and Tanner sequence. And uh, they, um, uh, that was mainly Teshkal, I think, with Tanner as a postdoc. And then Tanner took it uh, to look at some uh, excite samples. So he introduced uh, the potential of diffusion uh, measurements with NMR to biology. But uh, with that, you could not do anything uh, in vivo, at least not easily, and, and not localize. So my, my idea was to localize. So I used this machine from CGR, and uh, uh, I was lucky I had a collaborator called Eric Breton, who was an engineer there. This is how I could get access to the um, proprietary code of, of the machine, as all, all manufacturers have their own code. I mean, I could program the sequence. It was in Fortran. It was at that time. It was not difficult, but you know, there are some secret parts. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's always, a, it's always an art. So, this is how I could uh, I could have access to that. So, but then uh, there were several difficulties. Uh, so one difficulty was that we could not use the Stachkowski equation. I know sometimes people talk about Stachkowski equation, but this is not good because you have to take into account the many gradient pulses that you have for imaging, and they are cross terms. So the, it doesn't work. So I had to rewrite a Stachkowski equation, uh, which is a double integral. It became complicated. So because of that, I said, radiologists will not like it. So this is uh, introduced the B value and the, the B is from by hand, my name. Yeah, yeah. 
how many people probably realize that? But yeah, <laughs> I don't think many people know. But this is, I say, okay, instead of this double interval of time with time, I, I call that B. Then you have BD, like for the echo time and NT2, something similar, very simple to understand. Yep. And then the second point was that I, I, I knew, we'll talk about that later again, but I knew by heart almost uh, Einstein's paper from 1905 on the Brownian motion. So he showed how Brownian motion and diffusion was basically two, two, two ways to see the same phenomenon. And uh, in his article, in fact, he shows that diffusion is basically microscopic and, and Brownian motion is microscopic. So it, this work of Einstein is bridging two scales. So that's exactly what I wa wanted to do, to, to bring, to see with our coarse images, at that time the resolution was, let's, let's say, two, three millimeters, uh, what was going on in the tissue in the micro microscopic level. So it's like a biopsy, virtual bi biopsy. But mm -hmm. then I realized that stage Carl turner equation, uh, the, ba the basic equation, is about free diffusion. Yep. So if, so I said, I, I knew Turner work on restricted diffusion late, but it was awfully complicated. Uh, I checked all this work, of course, but I said, again, radiologists, we not <laughs> like it. <laughs> let's make it simple. So yeah. I said, let's apply the Einstein's equations, assuming free Gaussian diffusion, but then we know that the result will not be the true diffusion coefficient. So this is how I came to the second big concept, the ADC, the apparent diffusion coefficient, yeah. which means that what we see is not the true diffusion coefficient, it is apparent. But this is what makes diffusion MRI so useful. If, yeah. if, if we had free diffusion, like in a glass of water, there would be no interest at all. So, so these are the two main concepts that I introduced at the time, but also it was tricky in terms of corrections for eddy currents, motion artifacts. There were many, many issues which are still not completely solved today. In fact, uh, of course, yeah. we have made a lot of progress. So this is how it worked. So in fact, it was very quick. If I remember well, once I had the idea, it was implemented just in a few, in order, in a few weeks only. I was the first volunteer, or today you cannot do that. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I jumped in, in the MRI machine and I got images of my brain. I measured the, the ADC and uh, and it worked very well because in the liver it was a disaster because the liver was jumping up and down with respiration. So, but in the liver it worked very well. Then we had our first patients. Uh, they were kids, unfortunately, with tumors and so on because I was working with this. Uh, Physician and uh, and uh, it worked so well that we published the very first abstract on diffusion MRI so in London in 1985 at uh, the SMRI meeting. There was no I; it was SMRI at the time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and, uh, and uh, we we patented it. Uh, we had the first patent and several patents. But to be honest, I have to say that in 85, when I presented this work, there were two other abstracts on diffusion MRI. One by a German group, Dieter Merbold, I remember very well because we were sitting next to me where we were putting our slides and we were looking at each other <laughs> screen. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. <laughs> but he was using a steam sequence and uh, I think he had images of the hand, but this didn't work uh, and he stopped. And there was an, a poster by Taylor uh, where they used something close to my uh, method on X. And, but bolt eggs. <laughs> okay. okay. And then uh, you didn't, they didn't do anything with it. 
So oh. that that was that was the story. Yeah, my, I I remember uh, Mirbel. Uh, he, was he working with Fromm at the time, or was he? Yes, yes, with Fromm. Yes. Yeah, and and then you mentioned actually uh, so early work also. So Mike Mosley actually did this on on yes. But, it, but it's interesting because the diffusion coefficient uh, like it, it went down with with. Uh, a schema, I guess, and that's yes. In, in fact, yes, that's in fact this is very very uh, important and uh, crucial for for the development of, of diffusion MRI. Because when I, I talked about diffusion MRI, people look at me and say, "Okay, well, and what do you do with it?" And it's complicated. <laughs> so people uh, they had already a hard time to understand T1 and T2, but now there was diffusion. Uh, so. But what made really diffusion MRI uh, emerge uh, was finding the discoveries by, by I think we could call, call them discoveries. I had developed, maybe we can talk about that a little bit later, this IVIM concept that yeah. diffusion MRI can also look at uh, perfusion and blood circulation. So Mosley, Mark Mosley, was, was working on stroke, acute stroke, and he had uh, a, a model with, with cats. And uh, he used my, my methods, which I developed a few years ago, I think it was three, four years before that I had developed diffusion MRI. And he tried to see the, the, the effect on perfusion, of course, because that's what it is about uh, stroke. And then he, he noticed something which was weird, that it was really the, the diffusion, the ADC, which was dropping. That was something new. Nobody yeah. knew about that. And yeah. again, without the localization. So if you had just the stage calentaner NMR method, nobody would have seen that. Nobody. So it was because of the localization. You could see the area with the, with the stroke. And um, it started everything because from that, we had a way to make a diagnosis of acute stroke. As a neuro uh, neurosurgeon and also a neurologist, at that time, even before CT, we were guessing. We were guessing about the diagnosis. Anyway, it was too late to do anything. But yeah. at the same time, the uh, RTPA, so the, the thrombolysis, uh, was already used for the heart. So we had a way, a tool, to objectively see the patients at a very early stage, so within a few hours, and check the efficacy of the treatment. So this was done at the MGH, but this is how today patients can get acute diagnosis and hopefully be saved from a disaster, even from death, using thrombolytic agents. I had to talk before this interview with some colleagues in France and they use diffusion MRI every day. So that was something. And the second discovery of Mike Mosley, I think also by chance, he found that first in the, in the spinal cord, uh, you know, there is a grain white matter, it looks like an H. Yep. It discovered that diffusion was depending on the direction of the measurement. So anterior, posterior, and, yeah. uh, and so on. He discovered that there was anisotropy of, of water diffusion in the brain. Tanner and Steshkal had observed anisotropy in excised muscles, but in the brain, that was completely new. And oh. you know, this is how tractography emerged uh, a few yes. years later. So my yeah. question, I think, is, is that I mean, not in maybe not in terms of the technical aspects, but in terms of what made diffusion MRI going to the clinical field, where this, those two discoveries. And the third person that I want to mention, because uh, I moved to NIH in 1987, I was invited, uh, and they got a French CGR machine at NIH in radiology. Yes. And basically, I was the key coming with a with machine. Okay. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. <laughs> so I came with a machine. <laughs> ah. And uh, I, of course, I started diffusion MRI there, but it was still my um, Spineco 2D FT sequence. 
And one year later, Bob Turner came, but he he was he, he was coming from uh, Peter Mansfield lab, yes. you know, in Nottingham, where they had uh, set up EPI. So together, we designed this EPI sequence to measure diffusion. Bob built a gradient coil for that. You know, yes. it was really from scratch. Yeah, there was no gradient coil, no sequence. And we got help from uh, uh, Joe Meyer from GE at the time, yep. because at NIH was the GE site at the time, and uh, and uh, we we started and we published the fact that diffusion MRI could be made with EPI as a machine artifact free almost yes. and very fast, which was critical. I mean, during my time, each B value would take ten minutes. One B value, ten minutes, and the highest was one hundred. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> we, we, <laughs> With Bob's coil, it took one minute to get 16 B values, and the highest was 1,000. So yes. it turned everything. So if you mix up the work that I did with, with Bob Turner about making diffusion MRI useful in terms of practically useful, and the discoveries by Mike Mosley, many acute stroke manufacturers, vendors uh, were pushed by clinicians. Well, we want that. We want that. And this is how it, de- it developed over in the 90s. Yeah. Well, that's actually a, a really good point also regarding echoplanar because, you know, everyone was thinking, oh, it can capture high speed like heart or whatever. And, but there's a, but I think people should realize that it, there's a, there's a stability that comes with echoplanar imaging. And, and even to this day, uh, single shot diffusion imaging is still, you know, there, everyone's trying to do it with single shot. Multi-shot is, is very challenging as far as. Absolutely. Yes, that's right. So before we get into uh, maybe you know, starting with the time that you're at the NIH. Before we get into the IVIM, uh, which is a which is an extension of diffusion imaging, let's just talk a little bit about your time at the NIH. And mm-hmm. you were there. You know, you're working with Bob Turner, and 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 it's interesting. I I do remember very well uh, my colleague actually Eric Wong um, before we developed echoplanar imaging at the Medical College of Wisconsin with his own grading coil, he actually went to your workshop on diffusion imaging, and yes. I think mm-hmm. he had a tour of the scanner, and he's like. For the first time in my life, I heard echo planar, and it sounded so different. It was like this pinging. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yes. So, in fact, I have many things to say. I stayed seven years at, at NIH. I was supposed to stay there, in fact, and then I, I would today walk with you. <laughs> but uh, it was a great time. But not only for me, I consider this as a gold time of MRI because fMRI also came at the same time, DTI, everything. Uh, with all this knowledge in 1990, so it was very early because I invented diffusion MRI in five years earlier, we had the very first diffusion MRI workshop at NIH. In fact, it was a, in, in the Marriott Hotel nearby, but I invited uh, uh, many, many of the top scientists at the time, including Stechkow. I was sure. Really? Okay. Oh, no. Yeah, Stechkow came. He, he died a few, some times ago, unfortunately, but such a great guy. He wrote me a letter by hand to say, I accept uh, your invitation. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> so, so we had uh, we had a really nice time. And uh, yes, this is, uh, I, I remember the great names uh, of this. I still have the fire of, of, of the meeting and the program. Yeah. So I was very proud of that. And uh, because we, uh, Mike Mosley, of course, were there. And uh, we were all uh, excited about his work on acute stroke and, uh, and uh, anisotropy. So... Back to, to, to my department, I was in the radiology department, the clinical center. I, I had the collaboration with a young radiologist from France uh, there, Philippe Dweck, and said, well, if we can measure diffusion, let's say, at least in two directions, we might have a way 
So the goal is not to measure the anisotropy. From the anisotropy, we can estimate what the, is the direction of the fibers. Yeah. So if you measure diffusion vertically and horizontally, if the diffusion coefficient is higher horizontally, that means the fibers are more horizontal than vertical. So we published this paper, and the title is Color, uh, color Mapping of White Matter. In 1991, in JCAP, yeah. uh, Dikiro was uh, was the editor in chief at that time. Giovanni Dikiro was at NIH, so it was the very first, in fact, um, tractography paper. Yes. But uh, then uh, it was, not, I mean, we had only two directions, and uh, and then I met uh, totally by coincidence Peter Basser. Yes. So NIH, I don't know if they are still doing that today. They had NIH wide science festival. Yes. Once a year or once every two years. Yep. And they invite uh, people to give talks and to give posters. So I was invited to give a talk on diffusion MRI. And Peter had a poster on ionic uh, fluxes in, in tissues. And we had a discussion. Peter was very excited about diffusion MRI. And he said, you know, what you do is not good because diffusion is not a scalar and it is a tensor. That means that if you change uh, the axis, you will get a different result. I said, of course I know that, but <laughs> what do you want me to do? <laughs> then he started everything. And uh, with Peter, we devised uh, a way to wait, basically to measure diffusion along at least six directions. Because the tensor has nine coefficients, but uh, due to the symmetry, only six are necessary. So if you measure diffusion in six independent directions, you get a set of six equations, and you can estimate the diffusion tensor coefficients. Yes. So this is how it, it came. And we had a great postdoc, James Mattiello, who is also, uh, unfortunately, uh, not with us anymore. But he, he was great doing uh, the experiments and also making all the calculations because now the cross terms have to be considered among between perpendicular axes. So it becomes really messy, especially with EPI, where you have pulses everywhere. So the B, B value got promoted as a B matrix. And he published a paper on that. And uh, unfortunately, we were not allowed uh, for because of NIH rules to scan uh, human subjects. I, wa I was... I was not alone. It was possible, but not me, because yeah. I was a French doctor, and I guess French doctors are not good enough. I don't know why. <laughs> NIH so rules. We were it's... not allowed to scan human volunteers, so we scanned some uh, excised tissues. I, I remember, I mean, we we had, um, we took, a, I, I bought some rabbit meat from a giant store nearby, and this is how we, can merge, we could develop the very first experiment. Because there was too much rabbit. So I said to my colleague, no, not Peter, but another colleague, maybe you could take it home and have it in your fridge. And say, no way. My wife would never accept to have a dead rabbit in the fridge. Because in France, we eat rabbits, but not in the US. So <laughs> that was uh, quite yeah. fancy. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we we developed with with Peter Basser DTI and uh, patented it also, and it was extremely successful. And in 1994, uh, I was offered a job in France, and uh, I hesitated a lot, but I decided to accept. I know Peter was uh, very sad, and then he worked uh, with uh, Peter uh, um, with Carlo Pierpaoli, who yes. uh, I don't know if it is because he was Italian, but he has a permission to. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that uh, maybe some US license, uh, I don't know what, but he was, he was available for Peter and he, they contributed together a great, great work. And I continued on from DTI. And from DTI, then emerged uh, tractography. Exactly, yeah. 
Yeah. We could talk a lot about that because there are some tricky issues. You know, it's uh, merging between uh, physics and biology yes. and computer science and mathematics. I yes. mean, the, the very early, you know, very well, of course, <laughs> the very early algorithms were taken from uh, artificial vision, sometimes completely ignoring what we are measuring. So basically, they would take for granted what we get with MRI, with DTI, and then build tracks using softwares. And you know, today, it works very well, of course, but for we know that there are biases, there are artifacts, there are, there are tracks which are not real. When fibers are crossing or whatever, it's, it's tricky. Yeah. So it's there's still a lot of discussion about uh, what we see with tractography. Yeah. So it's the end of it. <laughs> yeah, it's an ongoing issue. Actually, I'll be I'll be talking with people uh, in the following weeks about you know some of those sticky issues with with interpreting tractography. Although it's incredibly useful. Oh, yeah, 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 definitely. Yeah, yeah. It's it's beautiful. I mean, beautiful. I know well, at some point in Paris on the metro station they had put uh, images of uh, fiber tracks with yes. colors. <laughs> I was so proud. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's one of the things from MRI that right strikes you if you have really beautiful fine fiber tracks. You it, it, it just you know it looks very biologic, but it's also extremely detailed and, and yes, and in three D in colors. You know, I mean yes, and and when you think about it again, people most young people would take it for granted. Some people they don't even know how it is done with DTI or more more advanced techniques. But all of that, I mean, all of that is brilliant motion and diffusion. It's, it is Einstein's paper from 1905. Yeah. I mean, it is incredible. Einstein would have been amazed to, <laughs> to see <laughs> that this paper. Gave yeah, and, and, the, and the, you know, right, for people just to, who are listening, who are, uh, you, know, ba- you know, the, the basic idea, right, is that uh, is, is, yeah, you have diffusion that's restricted in different directions and, and depending on the, the fiber track and it's yes, yes. longer in one direction and another. Yeah, that's a nice paper. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and it's always interesting. And there's different games you can play as well. You can either increase the diffusion gradients or wait a certain amount of time. And that gets different types of, you know, yes. uh, uh, which is also till it's still kind of an interesting topic in some regard there oh, as well. Yeah, yeah. But let's go on. Let's go on. So that's that was your major. I mean, that was a huge contribution. You could have, uh, you know, you stopped right there, but you didn't. And no. and uh, what I, where I became, well, I first was aware of, uh, you know, early on when I was just starting graduate school, I, I, I was aware of your diffusion tensor uh, work, and it was it was really intriguing. But I was still trying to image brain function, and I remember reading your papers from the late '80s and the early '90s on on taking diffusion and applying it to capillary beds, the whole model for intravoxel incoherent motion. And that was also, to me, incredibly exciting uh, and a, a really elegant model. Uh, and, and the way you laid it out in, in radiology, in I think it was the Journal of Radiology and, and other places was just beautiful. I don't know if you wanted, if you could talk about yeah, that a little bit. Yeah. But then we go back again to 1985. Yes, yes. <laughs> so I mean, there's all this stuff in parallel. Yeah. In, in parallel. So very quickly, looking at uh, my own brain and then the brain of the patient, I said, I mean, the, the, the measurement I had for the ADC were a little bit uh, striking. And I, I, I saw that there was some correlation with what I knew about uh, about the flow and volume in the brain, especially between the cortex and the white matter and so on. So then, again, extremely quickly, looking back at Einstein's paper, I mean, this, this is my Bible, okay? I will tell you later that there is another Bible from Einstein. But anyway, <laughs> let's start with this one. And uh, they, I mean, you know that the diffusion coefficient is, uh, I mean, we, you, can, you can estimate a diffusion coefficient of, of uh, diffusing molecules 
from the distance between the, between molecules or atoms. So the molecules are bouncing to each other, and uh, the diffusion coefficient is basically the product of the distance between two molecules and and uh, the time. So it. I said, well, if we consider now that blood flows in capillary segments, which are pseudo-randomly oriented in space, so then we have a kind of random walk. That means the flowing blood goes from one segment to the next, and there is no correlation between the directions, sequential directions. So this is a random walk. And I, I just copy-pasted Einstein's equation. I'll say, but let's now call uh, the distance between two molecules, the segment, the, the capillary segment length, and then I had the velocity of the blood. Of course, there are, the, the order of magnitudes are, there are five orders of magnitudes in difference, but when you, you calculate, when you, you mix together the distance and the time, and, and you get a, another diffusion coefficient, which I call D star, so the pseudo diffusion coefficient, it's only 10 times larger than the true diffusion coefficient of water. Okay. So when I found that, I said, that's it. Now, I know why I see it with diffusion MRI, because it's so close. But I knew, and that was my second paper in radiology with Tom Dixon uh, as a reviewer. He gave, he gave me his review recently. <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> and I, I said, then we have a way to separate D star from D. So we could make images of, uh, of uh, perfusion and uh, uh, from the IVIM effect different from the diffusion images. And my goal in 1985 was the same as, as, as you, was to do fMRI. So I, because uh, with PET, you know, they look also at, at, at the blood flow, right? They, well, I have with MRI a way without injecting any tracer, a way to, uh, to see if there is an increase in, in blood flow. So I, I did the experiments on the daughter of my uh, physics uh, PhD thesis mentor. <laughs> so okay. she came to the facility. And I uh, remember I was doing a visual stimulation, flashing in front of her eyes, uh, some image. And so it was very crude. <laughs> I think I could see some, um, some effects, but uh, I was not very convinced. And, uh, but there was, I still have the images. And now looking at them, I think there was something, but it was very... Uh, well, I could not make anything with it. And then I came to NIH. Yeah. And uh, I was not working on that anymore. But Alan Song at Duke did it. And he, he showed that it work, it's working. You, you can do fMRI with the IVIM effect. So let's, so, let's, let's dig into that just a little bit. Yeah. So I'm just, I'm, so, so let me just back up just for a second here. Yes. So with the IVIM, I mean, certainly if you just had, you know, capillaries, right, you would, you would attenuate that. But, you know, I remember at the time, there was still always worry that, oh, it, it um, attenuated maybe CSF or it was very sensitive to motion or, or even intravascular large vessel signals, you know, you might diffuse, you know, defase that more rapidly. And yeah, so I think that there was some issue with there. I mean, certainly it's been worked through, but uh, uh, I don't know if you want to mention, uh, talk about some of those things that came up, like, you know, people would be worried, like, oh, what are we looking at here? Is it just CSF pulsation or um, uh, that sort of thing? Yes. How you separate? Yes, yes. Yeah, in fact, in, in my 1986 uh, article in, in radiology, there is a one case where you see a CSF flow beautifully with, with yeah. uh, it's an IVIM effect, but it is CSF. Yes. This is how yeah. I could say, uh, we, are, we are not looking at diffusion. And this is why we call this 
with my uh, my mentor in, in physics, intravoxone incoherent motion. To say that beside diffusion, anything incoherent, so not, not head motion, head motion is coherent. People had a hard time at the beginning yes. to understand that. Yes. But yes, it was tricky because there was this uh, caveat. Also, we see it only at very low B values and uh, the effect is very small. Yes. So, so at the 1990 uh, workshop I organized at NIH, it was on diffusion and microcirculation with IVIM. And there were some of my NIH colleagues from the same, <laughs> same place, like Rick Bonin and uh, uh, James Picard, who were wearing T-shirts. On them, they had written diffusion, perfusion, confusion. <laughs> I was, I was. Oh my gosh. Oh, wow. In, a, in, a, in front of everybody at the workshop. Oh, great. You, you have to be brave to not to give up. You know? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> tough crowd. Tough crowd at the NIH sometimes. Right. <laughs> well, it was fun, but you know, sometimes you duck. And uh, so, and at that time, I was not doing any animal uh, experiments. Uh, so it was difficult to prove that. I had, I was sure I was right because yeah. of uh, other pieces of evidence I had, but it, it was hard. In 1999, there was a very first paper, a clinical paper in the liver by a Japanese team showing that indeed they could, they could answer my question about uh, angiomas and tumors in the liver yeah. from the IBIM effect. So it, it was there. And after that, uh, it increased a lot. And, Today, it's, it is used extensively for, for, for cancer in, in oncology because you have a way to, to measure blood volume and blood flow, mainly blood volume. And, you know, in, in tumors, in malignant tumors, there, there is a neoangiogenesis angiogenesis, and the proliferation of small vessels. So you can, you can watch that in, uh, in time. And, also, and you can also check uh, if the treatment is working because the Treatments are also working against uh, the small vessels. So, yeah. and uh, in, I think three years ago, we published a 500 pages textbook on IVIM MRI yeah. <laughs> with, uh, with my colleague, uh, Dr. Ima for, from Japan, uh, Dr. Fredro from Switzerland, and uh, Sigmund, Dr. Eric Sigmund from, uh, from NYU. So you see, it took a long time. So that's a problem. I mean, diffusion and IVIM and everything I'm doing, looks like it takes 10 to 20 years before people realize that it could be useful. I'm getting old. So <laughs> some, yeah. some instance, you, you two years later, great. But in, in my case, people are at the beginning, hmm, I'm not sure <laughs> I understand what you want to say or to do. And before people realize that not only it, is, it makes a lot of sense, but it is working and useful 10 to 20 years. As in diffusion MRI, DTI 10 years, IVIM 20 years. Yeah, and it's still, it's such a rich area. I mean, have you even considered it? It's just occurred to me. Have you ever considered trying to make apparent or IVIM generated uh, tensor maps? Yes, in fact, uh, I had a PhD student, uh, Gabriel Fourdet, a few years ago. And we, because uh, in, my, in my radiology paper from 88, uh, I introduced two extreme models. 
One model is the exponential models, which basically exactly the same as diffusion and times equations. But if the flow in, in the capillaries is, is too slow, or if capillary segments are, are long, then the, 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 the blood will not change direction. Right. Then you, if you do the calculation, you, you, you find that the distribution is a cinch curve. But in between, it, it's more complicated. <laughs> yeah. So there are some PhD thesis about that. My uh, student worked out uh, with a mathematician we had uh, Jing Yi uh, with us, and we showed that if you take if you take the sink condition, the condition are for sink, because of the distribution of velocities and the distribution of capillary segments, you end it, you end up with a, with an exponential anyway. So yeah. the exponential model looks looks correct even if we are not uh, in the in the physical regime corresponding to the exponential. But we look also at the anisotropy because yeah. uh, especially in white matter, the the, the, the vessels are, are not completely random. They, right. they follow the facts. And we could see some anisotropy effect, but most importantly, I think for people who do IVIM, if you, because people doing IVIM and diffusion, they don't care about DTI most of the time. Yes. But then uh, in the brain, depending on the direction of the measurements, the IVIM effect will not be the same. Not because IVIM is anisotropic, that because diffusion is, is anisotropic. Okay. So if you fit the data, uh, then you get you get the bias in, in the IVIM. So we, we showed that. And uh, and also by changing the diffusion time, you can switch between different models. No, it's, it's, there is a lot to do. Yes, clearly. Yeah. There's so much. Yeah, and actually let's just, um, I'm really curious about, so, so what I actually tell people, I, I've been telling people for years and now with 7T, it's less of an issue. I say, well, you know, if you want to get rid of your intravascular signal, I mean, your large, this is more large vessel intravascular signal, uh, then just apply a, a, a little bit of diffusion weighting and that, that defases it. And that's, and that's sort of the effect, you know, now when I was, when I was doing my postdoc at MGH and also Alan Song at the time around 95 showed, I mean, so let's go from like, he showed that, you know, with diffusion imaging, it attenuated the bold signal much more at 1.5 Tesla or three Tesla. And then at seven Tesla, it didn't just because the T2 star of blood is so much lower that the signal's already gone. But how do you go from, yeah, just for everyone to understand, how do you go from what is attenuated in the bold signal? The bold signal is attenuated by diffusion imaging because you get rid of the intravascular signal. How did he then image IVIM from that observation? I mean, was it from that observation that was it inferred or was it was he actually imaging IVIM? We measured really IVIM. So it's basically what Alan Song did because yeah. it's, it's not the IVIM weight, weighted. I mean, we, if you calculate the from by fitting the curve, yeah. the bold effects, I, I'll, I'll talk about that in diffusion fMRI maybe, but the bold effect is present in plain diffusion MRI because it's a T2 weighted sequence. So yes. you, you have the bold effect anyway. If you manipulate different uh, signals from different B values and yep. you take the IVIM part, you can cancel okay. the bold contribution. So you, we know that it is a, a genuine diffusion effect observed with IVIM with low B values. Now, it is also true that you can clean up the bold response if you have a gradient eco-sequence by killing the signal from large vessels. But that's not the IVIM effect. Yes. Yeah, that's uh, an important point. Yeah. yeah, so then you can deface a fast-flowing blood in small uh, arteries or veins because uh, those vessels are, are more remote to the activation sites. You, you artificially increase the spatial resolution of bold fMRI. So I know some people have suggested that I'm not sure it's used uh, every day, but it's uh, it's it is working. Uh, that's for sure. But then there is a other effect. What if you now calculate the ADC? So you uh, form B values above 200, 
And then you, the idea in effect is gone. Yes. And then you start to see something else, which is a pure diffusion response. So okay, let's get into that. <laughs> yes, the signal acquired at 200 and the signal acquired with B of 1800, the bold effect is the same. There is a bold effect present. I would never say that there is no bold effect, but it is very small, especially if the spin echo sequence. But if you calculate the ADC, you find that the ADC is going down during the activation. And that's what we published. Uh, I published in 2001 with one of my uh, PhD students at Dake, but more convincingly, I think, when I was in Kyoto. So this PNS paper of 2006, yes. where we showed that uh, the ADC was going down. It is really the ADC because we, we can show that the value, I mean, the, the effect depends on the B value. So it, it is really scaled by the degree of diffusion weighting. But what was so nice was to see that the timing of the response was different than bold and much faster by two or three seconds. It's huge, you know. So so it's faster. So it, you know, I remember when I first saw it, right, it's faster, but it's not like, you know, I mean, I guess it's a, it depends on the sampling rate of, of the of, of MRI. Absolutely. Yes, yeah. yes. So, so yes, so that's right. In fact, uh, at that time, I think the TR was one or one and a half seconds. Now we are we have switched to line scan fMRI, and yeah. so we we sacrifice one special dimension, so we have only one line. But then we can go to let's say 200 feet, 250 milliseconds, and then we see the time course. And um, I'm not we are not the only one. I mean. Uh, uh, um, Daniel uh, Nunes at, uh, at the Champolino in, in Isbon and, and Noam Shemesh have published, beaut- I think in your image, a beautiful paper showing really that uh, the time course was, was very fast, but also what they sh- they've seen. And we see too, we have two peaks, one peak which is during occurring during the activation window and one peak which is after the end of the stimulation. It's not a shoulder, it's a different peak and we see now with, uh, with our line scan that it is not at the same place exactly. Okay. We don't know what it is. I, we had an abstract at the ISMRN this year. My hypothesis is that I believe diffusion fMRI is about neuronal swelling, but it, there is also astrocyte swelling. And we know from the literature that astrocyte swelling occurs uh, remotely in time and space. So I think that uh, the astrocyte swelling is related to bold. <laughs> so oh, really? we have to pay with diffusion fMRI to dissect the mechanism. So what is occurring early, which is direct neuronal firing and hopefully neuronal swelling, and something which is a little bit later, which is energy restoration from the astrocytes, and that is delayed in time, and and it's not exactly at the same place. So it's very interesting. Interesting. But again, diffusion fMRI, I mean, uh, when I published this paper, many people, ah, it's not possible, it has to be bold, blah, 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 blah. I mean, uh, again, I'm, uh, I'm used yeah. to this. <laughs> no, I actually, I was, I was quite excited by it. We, we actually, I mean, you know, and it's hard though to, to, I mean, we tried, we tried to, to see it. We, we weren't that successful and maybe just because, you know, there's so many details of the sequence, you know, obviously you're giving up some, it's a little bit noisier. The signal effect is the same, but it's a little bit noisier and there might be eddy currents or whatever for, for us at least. And so we had a hard time seeing an effect before we get into that detail. I mean, just to clarify for the audience, the basic idea is that the diffusion coefficient within cells is less than outside of cells. And so with activation, you have some cell swelling and then you, therefore it's a larger volume of that which has lower diffusion coefficient and the diffusion coefficient goes down. And it's only measurable at very high B values because it's overall very slow. Is that, and that's the basic model. And that's still 
agreed upon. I remember, uh, I remember uh, that's maybe, about, yeah, that's maybe not exactly what uh, the, the model I have in mind. Okay. Now. okay. We've done additional experiments. Well, first, uh, because I was, you know, quite uh, attacked about uh, diffusion fMRI, which has, which has to be evolved. I mean, it is, it is a total Well, there is that one paper by Carla Miller that was pretty, I mean, yeah. like I looked at that and I thought, oh, well, that's sort of maybe suggests it's vascular, but but then there's obviously ways of- I know this paper. If you look at the, at the curves she shows, uh, she tried to- uh, uh, to increase uh, CO2 in, in volunteers. But if you look at the curve, it's only the very last point where you see something maybe. Yeah. I, don't, I, I mean, I, I have a lot of respect for Carla. I know her very well. But honestly, I don't believe in the data she, she published. Okay. I, I think it's anyway. So, so yeah. be, but that's good because she pushed us to, 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 to the limits. So we, we published some papers in animal uh, models showing that if you kill the uh, a neurovascular coupling from, with natural appreciate, which Ogawa did for, for bold. That's the bold response gone, is gone, but not the diffusion response. It is remaining intact, which means that it has nothing to do with the bold response and the hemodynamic well, response. Well, let's just wait a second. So if you kill the neurovascular coupling and yes. you have an increase in metabolic rate, wouldn't the bold signal go down and it might it look the like? Bold, I mean, the bold signal disappears and you might see in some points a negative bold response because then you see the oxygen consumption. So right. we, see that, we see that very well. So the, the, the positive ball response is abolished, but sometimes you see a negative uh, response. Yeah. But for diffusion fMRI, nothing. Okay. No change at all. When, when you took at the ADC, if you look at the, at the diffusion weighted image, then of course the ball effect is, is gone. So you have a small effect, but the ADC, no. So, I mean, hopefully this is highly convincing that it has nothing to do with the hemodynamic response. Right. Right. It has to do, yeah. Second uh, piece of evidence we've published also in Plus Biology, we um, we were we are awakening uh, rats under anesthesia. We talk about that with a new uh, new model I have of the mind. We by stimulating a very small uh, nucleus in the thalamus, you can wake up the animal. So you have to send some electrical current at a given threshold. If you block swelling there using, if you inject locally furosemide then you have a really hard time to wake up the animal. You yeah. have to increase the threshold a lot. You induce the swelling by uh, using a hypotonic solution, so diluted CSF. Then you can wake up the animal with a very small current. Wow, okay. And at the same time, we measure the ADC, and you see the ADC locally. The decrease yes. in the ADC is, is there, but remotely also. So you see all the, all the areas, including the sensory motor cortex, which are... Uh, the areas which are linked to this nucleus in the thalamus, they see the ADC changing also when the rat, when the rat gets uh, awake. And we are not injecting anything in those areas, remote areas. So you see that it, it's it's uh, really uh, amazing that so cell swelling, uh, I think, is really uh, the mechanism of diffusion fMRI. Yes. Now, to go back to your very interesting question, why is cell, in, cell size increase? So cell swelling would lead a decrease in ADC. But this, go, this goes back to acute stroke. In acute stroke, we have a big drop in ADC because of cytotoxic edema, cell swelling. Yes. So to, to answer your question, we did also some work, <laughs> which published, we look at uh, single neurons, a diffusion fMRI of single neurons. So we cheated a little bit because we, you look at huge neurons <laughs> with the Aplasia, Aplasia Californica model at 17 Tesla. So then we did the, some, uh, so we can see the neurons 
one by one. And we can also uh, look at the signal in the ganglion. That means by taking all the, all the neurons together, right? We can look at both. So what we see when we stimulate the neurons uh, with dopamine, first, with our eyes on the images, we see the swelling. So it is there, period. Yes. When you put the dopamine there, you see the neurons swell. Okay? Yeah. There is no blood, no nothing, just neurons. So yes. cell swelling is not a, a fantasy. It's it, yeah. it's right. It's there. Now the ADC inside the cells goes up, not down. That's a, exactly what we expect because you have a dilution. Right, right. It's bigger, and so there's more. It, yeah. So the ADC goes up, not down. So okay. then why why is the ADC going down with fMRI? Yeah. With diffusion fMRI. Now yeah. if you ADC by, on, on a region of interest, including several neurons, let's say a dozen of neurons, and the extracellular space between them, then the ADC goes down, and the effect is larger than what you see for the increased ADC inside the, inside the cells. Huh. Now, we did some calculation, because we can also measure the extracellular space. We can yeah. see it. So immediately, you say, well, the ADC goes down because there is a shrinkage of the extracellular space. Yes. That's not enough. I mean, it doesn't work. <laughs> so what is left is my favorite model, which I published also, which is that we have a layer of uh, water molecules bound to, to the cell membranes because of electrostatic charges. So the big debate is how fast, how far does that go? Is that only two layers of water molecules or 100 layers? There is a big controversy in the literature. I, I published a book. It's called Water, the Forgotten biological molecule. I invited, I invited uh, authors from both camps. And some told them, I don't want to write a chapter in your book if this guy is writing a chapter. That, that was, I mean. <laughs> Politics. Yeah. But they, I, was, uh, I used my charm or whatever, it worked out. So they all contributed. So this is the idea. So there is this layer. So if you increase the surface of the membrane because of stroke, because of activation, you increase the, the fraction of the slow diffusing water. Okay. So that's why the ADC goes down. But of course, water molecules say they don't care about your model. Right, <laughs> they right. use anywhere they want. So, so they, there is exchange. And, and exchange is usually completely ignored in, in, uh, in diffusion uh, MRI physics. This yeah. is a big error, I think. Yes. I mean, water molecules, they, have, they are not free, but they can cross the membranes. And we show that, in fact, they cross a lot. We, we've showed that with a different kind of setup. So if you have water molecules diffusing, so they spend some time in the intracellular space, sometimes in the membrane-bound layer, sometimes in intracellular spaces. It's a balance. So what you see with diffusion, diffusion MRI and diffusion fMRI is uh, the proportion of the time they spend in this layer. Okay. So if you increase, if you take... Uh, uh, the surface, all the surface you have in the neurons, in the, in the visual cortex, uh, in the human visual cortex, it's huge. It's huge. I mean, and, and even if you have a, let's say, a, a two or three percent increase in the cell volume, and only ten yeah. percent of the cells which swell, cell ten yeah. percent are activated, then a model that this you, it is ex explaining what we see in the no. human brain. And I so don't want to say more of a surface soft. area. So there's more of a surface yeah. area for which spends spend time exactly, around it. Exactly. Because there are so many spines. And each neuron have, let's say, 10,000 10, dendritic spines. And they're all swelling. I have movies in, in cat models where you see all these spines swelling and shrinking all the time. It's completely dynamic. It okay. is there. It is there. But people, I mean, they love they love balls. I, I like balls. But, uh, yeah, yeah, no, but... <laughs> Right. If we can get a more direct signal, and I and I, I'm sort of agnostic. I mean, I just wanted to know what 
can be done and what's interesting. And it, I, I tend to believe it. And I think that, right, if we can get a, if we can somehow clean up the noise, I, you know, there might, there's all these things yes. that are coming out. You're right. Might mm. be able to help. Yeah, yeah, yeah the point. The amplitude of the diffusion fMRI response is the same as both, even a little bit bigger. But the spin echo with long diffusion time, because we don't, we cannot put the gradients otherwise, is, is killing us. I mean, the, the SNR is not as good as ball. Yeah. So my, my conclusion is that if you want to do cognitive neuroscience, ball is good, is, is perfect. It is easy and uh, no problem. If you want to do, I, I don't want to, do, to to have bad words, but neuroscience, you know what I mean? I mean, yeah, the, yeah. Understanding, uh, the neuroscience of activation and so on. So you are interested in the, in the spatial resolution and the temporal resolution, then diffusion MRI, diffusion fMRI would be better, I think. And especially if you work with animal models, yep. anesthesia is a killer with both. I mean, we, we've looked at metotomidine and isoflurane. They have opposite effect of the bold response. Yeah. While for diffusion, no effect at all. If you want to do resting state fMRI in animals, I mean, uh, you have to consider the effect of the drugs. Yeah. With diffusion fMRI, you don't care. So that's, well, that's actually another thing that occurred to me too, is that, is that you could potentially, you know, I've been trying to look at, you know, using MRI to look at, you know, global changes in, in, in inflammation and, in, mm. and, you know, it's, it's sort of like starting to bubble up in the literature and sort of saying, well, maybe global inflammation with lifestyle or whatever, lack of sleep leads to Alzheimer's or whatever. And so trying to use MRI to look at global inflammation, it seems that there's a way of, with the fusion, uh, with this sort of trying to get a global assessment of, of, of this. Oh. Sense. But um, yes, I, I agree. But also, also there's a big thing that everyone's really intrigued on, and that's looking at the glymphatic system. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you've been you've been looking at that. You've been starting to look at that with a, a number of papers too. Yes. So, might want to. Yeah. It is intriguing. I have to say that it is a fascinating field because it might explain many things uh, up to Alzheimer's disease. <laughs> there are models for that. It might explain why gadolinium get uh, deposited in in the brain. It made uh, many many things. But uh, so I'm not an expert on that. So I, I don't want to talk too much. Yeah. But. Uh, uh, the idea is that the astrocytes are also playing a big role there. And we did some experiments where we manip manipulated the astrocytes, blocking, blocking the swelling of astrocytes, for instance, and so on, uh, with TGN20. And we've, we've seen that with diffusion MRI, with something new I have introduced uh, recently, which is the S-index. S-index is a way, it's not the ADC, it's a quantitative, quantitative marker, which doesn't depend on any model. It's just that you look at the signal, it's a, a little bit like... A, artificial intelligence where you, you want to classify tissues without making any hypothesis. Yeah. And what we see is that with diffusion MRI and this S-index, we can catch the fact that the, we can we can monitor the astrocyte activity, but that's it. So we don't claim anything really yet about the glymphatic system because there are many controversial issues. I'm yeah. a strong believer that, yes, there is such a system, but then the IVIM effect, considering CSF, my estimation is that uh, no, it should be there should be no effect on the CSF flow in the tissue itself, in, in the ventricles or in the in the vascular species like the virtual Roman species. Probably, uh, some people have claimed that there is CSF flowing in the parenchyma. I don't think so. Uh, at least we cannot see it with IVIM diffusion. We look at that and we don't see anything. So it is open open field. Yes, I'm very much interested, and uh, I believe diffusion MRI has uh, 
is a key player there as well. But I cannot say more at this time. Now, I've often suggested to sort of like try either looking at, uh, you know, looking, doing some sort of diffusion weighting to try to pull out the lymphatic system. But it seems like seems like the most successful results have been right with uh, Laura Lewis looking at the fourth ventricle, just slow. Exactly. Yes, 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 um, yes. Yes. Which is interesting. So, okay. So let's, um, so this, I mean, right. I mean, uh, and actually I'm, I'm definitely excited about using MRI to look at diffusion changes with activation. And I think that I, I believe your results is just a matter of, you know, once again, pushing the field forward to sort of have mm-hmm. noisy techniques and really pull out, really be able to get robust findings so people could use yeah. it. I mean, I've been trying to look at neural current effects, which are sort of, you know, hypothetical, but not exactly there either. I mean, no, much, much further fa- back from diffusion, definitely. I mean, but, but, the results. Uh, yeah. But <laughs> what, what you've done yourself about uh, electrical currents is also amazing. And, and again, it's the same also that the effect, I'm sure that, I'm sure you're right. I'm sure this effect is there. Yeah. It's too small to be catched, to be to be uh, seen, exactly. but uh, exactly. it might be that when we go to very high field, then we might we might see something because you you must be right. I mean, the physics uh, with Lorentz forces, it has to be right. Yeah, and with MEG, you you're measuring something, and so you must have a source. To the degree you have a source, Absolutely. you're yeah. coherent. Yeah, and I'm I'm always uh, holding out hope for that. It's still working along. It's but certainly diffusion is further along the line where you can actually see a result. And, and now it's just a matter of refining the technique and applying it. But, and there's so much more degrees of freedom with diffusion imaging that you can actually do a lot with that. So, so that's great. What about, okay, so now let's switch gears completely. So talking about high field briefly, about 10 years ago or, or so, you, or actually in 2007, you, you started Neurospin. And which I've only, I've had the uh, honor of visiting once in about 2014, and I was just blown away. It's a really impressive center. And the idea was to, you know, house a human 11.7 Tesla scanner. And you were the, the first to sort of like push that. And, and you actually had to work with the, you know, the French government uh, uh, to the Atomic Energy and Alternative Energy Commission. And, and it was, it, and also you're working with Siemens too, but it was like, was very challenging. Did you, could you describe that process? And uh, yeah, yeah. Right, but, but- my time constant is 20 years, as I said. <laughs> so in fact, this project started 20 years ago <laughs> and Neurospin uh, came a little bit later. So my idea, I mean, I can tell you the story. It was in 2000, I believe. Uh, I was uh, showing to a VIP coming to our center, which was, which was not Neurospin, a small hospital nearby. Our treated MRI system, because in France, it was the first one. And I was supposed to say I was very happy and blah, blah, blah. And instead I said, uh, well, it's great, but you know, given uh, my, my background in, in, in physics and I know these guys at uh, this Atomic Energy Commission in my, in my institution, they make magnets for the CERN in Geneva. We could make an 11.7 Tesla MRI magnet for human uh, studies. So people look at me considering that I was crazy, drunk or something happened to me. <laughs> and, uh, but, uh, just over a few weeks, I was called and said, this is such a great idea. Let's do it. <laughs> and then um, it's a long story because, again, it took 20 years. But uh, uh, I wrote a, not a grant, not even a grant, not even a single grant. I wrote a report uh, explaining my ideas and what would be the, the point to make such a magnet. And then uh, we had a tender, of course, uh, uh, manufacturers, they all said, ah, no way, no way, we cannot make something like that. And only CA made a feasibility study and showing that they could, uh, in fact, uh, make um, copy-paste 
the design used at the uh, LHC in, in the CERN for, for particle physics with a special pancake, double pancake design. And I mean, there are many, many tricks for this magnet. And uh, hopefully uh, make a magnet with this, uh, which was within our, my specifications about time stability and, uh, and spatial uh, homogeneity. So in 2004, uh, we had a meeting at, uh, at the top management of the CA and uh, we got the green light, do do it. It's a risky project, that was the conclusion, <laughs> of course. <laughs> but it is, you do it. I mean, you, but not, not me only, of course, everybody. So then uh, they, they worked out the details. It's, it's a crazy project. And in fact, uh, so the, we had, I mean, it's not a single Y. It's, it's a collection of 10, 10 filaments to make the Y of nobium titanium. So 11.7 Tesla at the limit. So in order not to go too far above the, the limit, the magnet is cooled down to 1.8 Kelvin, not 4.2. Oh, wow. Yes, oh. for the helium to be superfluid. That means that if there is any temperature increase that's locally, it is instantaneously dissipated. Uh, well, at the, at the speed of light, but anyways, yeah. <laughs> inside the magnet uh, to yeah. prevent the quench. And because of that, the magnet is, I mean, we had to build a cryogenic plant underneath. So at Neurospin, there is, there is a cryogenic plant to produce liquid helium at 1.8 kV uh, continuously to feed the magnet. Oh my God. You know, it's, it's something special. But so you see, Neurospin came as, we, we need a place to have this magnet. So we decided to build a new research center housing not only the 11.7 Tesla, but other magnets, including one which has not been, uh, which is only in my brain now that nobody knows about. <laughs> there is a one arch which is empty to, to welcome a new kind of magnet. So I'm working on that. And the other point is that the magnet is because it was, it would be too expensive and too complicated. It's not a solenoid, it's a double pocket design. And because of this design, the magnet has to be an external power supply. That means a lot of uh, risk for instabilities. So there are several patents about this magnet to, to compensate for instabilities and, and stabilize power supply and everything. So you see, it's, there are more than 1,000 sensors in the magnet. Yes. Everything is automatically controlled because you know in France, we have a lot of vacation, we have strikes, there is a pandemic, you know, <laughs> many yeah. things happening. And yeah. uh, to be sure that the magnet is always uh, secure. So. I mean, my colleagues had to design also a special uh, system to control the magnet. So the magnet is huge, five meters by five meters and uh, 150 tons. With, <laughs> and to, to go from, from Alstom where it was built uh, in uh, east of France, which is now a G Alstom, but not, not nothing to do with MRI and imaging. And uh, a new spin, it, was, it, it had to go by boat on, on the Rhine River and, uh, and the, the North Sea, and then the Seine River. It took three weeks for the magnet to, to travel. It arrived in uh, Neurospin at, uh, in, uh, in June uh, or May 19, uh, 2017. And then uh, it, it was a very tricky operation to put it back inside uh, Neurospin. Then uh, the cooling system has, had to be installed and checked and homogeneity, to be sure we could get to 11.7 Tesla without a quench, we went slowly. I think we went to, uh, we to 11.7 Tesla two years ago. 
And, uh, and now, I mean, everything is ready. So Siemens equipment came at the last minute. You know, it's, uh, yeah. Siemens, it's, it's a standard equipment. Right. And uh, so it was installed very recently. And Siemens is now finishing some tests. And we, we expect to, to get our first image very soon. And uh, before we, we get uh, to stand human subjects, we have to go um, to the uh, administration of France to get the permission. And uh, unfortunately, this will take time. And I uh, don't think we, we scan uh, human subjects before 2023. But you, 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 you have your 11.7 Tesla also there. So you are. Yeah. Right at the NIH, we have 11.7, and we're still uh, in the process. I mean, helium is is an issue to actually obtain it, and, and it's expensive, and it's it's coming. I think in the, it should be here soon, so it should, we should be ramping it up pretty. Oh, okay, tell, tell us. I mean, if you want some helium, we can ship to you. <laughs> <laughs> we might we might be asking you, um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, we've that was our bottleneck right now, and and certainly we were hoping to get it ramped up by hopefully by. The winter time. Oh, good. Yeah, so that's a terrific project, and I'm so proud of that. You know, and about 200 people worked on it. What? So what? What I didn't say is that, uh, of course, we need money to <laughs> to build such a monster magnet. So in 2004, I managed to put together a consortium, a French and German consortium of academic partners such as uh, CA and uh, industrial partners like uh, Gerbet in France, SME making contrast agents and Siemens. And uh, we got uh, approved by, uh, and, and uh, we got the money, huge amount of money, I think it was 215 millions of euros, but not for the magnet, for, for uh, to develop also new kinds of contrast agents aiming at ultra high, ultra high field MRI. The magnet is, is uh, a quarter of that. And okay. um, and this uh, this is how I came with the name Isolt for the project. So Isolt was, because I'm a musician, uh, <laughs> is a French and German uh, opera uh, with Wagner and Debussy also in France. So I said, this is good. And people uh, accepted it. So it's called Isolt Bank. <laughs> Okay. All right. Well, that's that's it. So, so one thing actually, um, yeah. And so our scanner actually quenched partially because we we were trying to push the gradients, and there was an interaction of the high performance gradients with pushing the duty cycle, sort of heating up maybe the bore a little bit, and sort of causing a quench. And then we obviously it's being fixed right now, but still or it's being it's been fixed. But but your scanner. So even though you care about the fusion, your scanner doesn't have the high performance gradients, but hopefully it will get those or, or uh, but there's a real risk. I mean, maybe it's, maybe it shouldn't have those uh, just because of the, the, the uh, that could be. but in fact, there is a big difference with your magnet. Your magnet is a 65 centimeter ball, right? It's tiny. It's a small, yeah, why my magnet is 90 centimeter ball. Oh, then so you... when, I, when I gave the specification back in 2001, people said, wow, it's huge. Are you sure it, it will be so expensive? And I said, yes, it is to minimize interactions of the gradient and the magnet. So when you had the crunch, they looked at me and said, you were right. <laughs> <laughs> I think you might be right. Yeah, definitely. So thank you, thank you, Peter. <laughs> and, and the third one point is that the lesson what we, we, we have inserted between the gradient coil and the, and the magnet, a shield. Uh, the shield is, is also limiting the amount of, uh, of heating and the boil-off in uh, an eddy currents in, in, the, in the magnet. So this is uh, tricky because, um, and, uh, but again, uh, it seems to work extremely well. And uh, we are looking over the shoulders of Siemens 
so that they don't push their gradients <laughs> too far. <laughs> but yes, uh, for diffusion MRI, uh, because the T2 and T2 stars will be, will be so much shorter, uh, we might have a hard time to do diffusion MRI. So the idea is to start with, uh, with the gradient systems that uh, we've got from Siemens, but then develop a more advanced gradient system. So not the connectome, as in Siemens, and especially Hans Schmidt was so, ah, no, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> I think they said, if we burn, if we, if we quench your magnet, it will be so expensive. <laughs> yeah, yeah that's know. risky. Maybe there was some politics, uh, not only science or technology, <laughs> but I, I have to say that it is not three Tesla <laughs> and the forces are huge. So I, I couldn't understand very well. And, and if we go to more, uh, to faster and stronger gradients, we will have to be very, very careful. Yeah. And we, have, we need to get the money anyway. <laughs> or, even, or even very small localized coils as opposed to the... the maybe. You have to be careful. I mean, yeah. Yeah, no, it's exciting. It's exciting. And these things take time. And, and yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, let me just skip ahead a little bit towards the, uh, you know, I, I, I'm respectful of your time. Obviously, this is taking this is a little bit longer, but it's perfect. It's great. Uh, There's a great discussion. Why don't we mention a little bit, you know, obviously, one thing that has always struck me about you is that you're you're very broad in your in your thinking, you're, you're intellectually you know, fearless in terms of going into various areas. And I noticed that um, you know, there's a paper that struck my attention uh, in, the, in the journal Brain Multiphysics on time and space in the brain of relativistic pseudo-diffusion framework. And maybe I, without going, you know, obviously you could spend probably hours talking about this paper, but it was really struck me as sort of like an extremely novel reconceptualization of trying to do brain modeling. And uh, I'm kind of curious about, you know, what motivated you to think about this and and, and where you're taking this idea. Um. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's my last uh, child, basically. <laughs> <laughs> so far. <laughs> yeah, so in fact, um, I've got interested in, uh, in the relativity uh, concept, relativity theory, back in uh, when I was a teenager, in fact. So it's long, long, long. I, uh, I realized that uh, maybe we, we don't consider the time properly in the brain. If you want to catch a fly, I mean, uh, you, you take your hand, but by the time you go to where you think the fly is, uh, the fly is gone. <laughs> the fly is smarter than you. Why? Because the brain uh, makes an image of the past. And then with some processing decides, maybe you, don't, you are not even aware. Well, don't forget, you have to catch a fly. And then you have to move your arm and everything. So by the time you get there, so the, 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 the brain is making a prediction, a forecast about what, where the, the fly will be. But the fly is, is, is going to random, random walk, brilliant motion, and you usually don't succeed. It's the same when, with tennis. When, when uh, you play the tennis, it's, the, the balls are so fast. You, the brain has no time to calculate. So the brain, based on the behavior of the guy across you and on his eyes, the positioning of the body, your brain make a calculation about where you have to put, not where the, long, the, the, the ball will be, but where you have to put your arm with, uh, to, to, to catch a ball. Yes. So m- my conclusion was that present is meaningless. And when you do fMRI, of course, time resolution is an issue, but you see many spots activated. But in fact, if you look at the sky at night, you see many stars, right? So you may consider they're all uh, like activated uh, things. But in fact, because of, the, of their distance, you don't see the stars at the same time. So this, all the stars you see have been sending light at different times. 
So it's the same. So when you look at the brain from outside with fMRI, or even if you have MEG because you have a little bit of the time, you have a view which I think is not what, if you, if you are an action potential flowing in the brain, that's not what you will see. Yeah. yeah. So this is going, so, and the, and the reason is that there is a speed limit in the brain connector. So the action potentials don't flow instantaneously between two, two areas. So if you take two knots, A and B, and you see them firing exactly the same time, A is not aware that B is firing, and yeah. B is not aware. I think these kind of concepts are not very well considered in, in the current literature. So yeah. if A is activated, it's because in the past of A, there was a, a cascade of, of activation. Right. So, in fact, this is exactly uh, the relativity theory of, of Einstein, and if so, that's why I said time is is a, is a special dimension. So we have to consider not uh, time and space separately, as it is done with current models, but we should consider that the brain connector has a space time in four dimensions. So yeah. at a given point in the four D space time, which I called an event, uh, so it there is. Um, this event is connected in the past, in the future, with a cone. That's a Minkowski kind of diagram. And, uh, and the opening of the cones is set by the velocity of the propagation of the action potential. So it is becoming more difficult than for physics because the speed velocity depends on the length of the connection. As you know, uh, long fibers are more malinated and they, they conduct more uh, faster than small fibers. So you have to consider all of that. So it makes things more complicated than the relativity theory. But you can import the, the math of the Einstein's equation to model that. And uh, in my paper, I, I, I said, well, even Einstein said that the speed velocity is a limit, but it could be any limit. So in the brain, it's not C, otherwise it would be very fast to think. <laughs> it's, I call it C star, okay? It's much slower, but because there is a speed limit, you have this problem. So then now you consider that uh, when action potential flow in the brain, it's like geodesics. They, they follow the lines, so the, the connections, which will minimize the energy in the four-dimensional space. Okay. So in order to, to develop further this concept, I went back to my favorite field, which is Rodenborg <laughs> and diffusion and IBM. Yeah. And uh, because you need to, to write uh, some physical model for that. So again, a D star and everything, but this, it is not now blood in, in, uh, in capillaries. We consider, um, I consider action potentials along fibers. As, and, as a, a diffusion of information. Yes, but now you cannot consider the fiber length or the velocity because length and velocity are related to space and time. So it, it's, it's becoming messy. So instead, <laughs> Uh, there are ways you're using the, the kinetic theory. But what is really, really impressive is that when I did that, I looked back at the paper from Einstein from 1905, which I, I, I thought I, I knew by heart. And then I discovered that he made, made I don't want to say a big mistake, but this paper is not compatible with the with relativity paper he published uh, two months later. Ah. <laughs> Because there is no speed limit in the diffusion paper of Einstein. Oh, interesting, interesting. Okay. Oh, that's interesting. So when I discovered that, I was shocked. Huh. So it was at night, and the next morning I went to the web, of course, and I discovered that some a few guys have catched up this this problem. The problem is that the solution is extremely difficult, <laughs> extremely yeah. difficult, and it has been only solved recently. There are a few PhD theses on that. I, 
uh, because it is used now to model uh, the, the displacement of galaxies or high particle energy physics. So it's, it's my former field. So if you mix up everything like that, you know, I, I, something happened in my own mind. It, I was lucky a few years ago, I went to a library fair in Kyoto University and I bought three books. One book was the, the geometry of Japanese temples. And you know, Japan was isolated from the world at the time. So the Japanese architect had to devise new kind of geometry, but it is extremely interesting. Okay. Then I read a, a, a novel by Ichigo, Ichigo, who got a Nobel Prize for literature. It's called The Unconsult. It's a story about a pianist who is supposed to give a concert somewhere in the middle of Europe, but it is really disconcerting that the pianist is completely lost in time and space. They are he's mixing up different events of his life. It's like he's dreaming, but he's not dreaming. Yeah. And this is how I got this space-time ID, basically. Okay. <laughs> and, okay. and then I, I read, the, I had a book, a textbook on relativity theory. I learned it when I was younger, but it was a refresher. I went further, so using this model, so it's complicated, so I use simulation instead of solving the equation. That's good to have computers. And you can show, for instance, that you might explain why schizophrenic people hear voices. We all hear voices, but if the time is wrong because the fiber connections are wrong, that's yeah. something we see with DTI. The order of the event in the, four, in the four, uh, D space-time could be reversed. Right. Yes. So they, they hear the voices before they realize that they are the authors of the voices. Got it. Oh, that's interesting. So, right, the time, the delays are, are wrong in such yeah. a way that you so, can so I'm writing a book. I'm, I'm almost finished about, about all these ideas, but it's, you know, the Schrodinger cat who is alive and dead. But if uh, you read in a book that, in fact, the cat should be, should be dead, the schizophrenic patient don't realize that, doesn't realize that he has read it. So, yeah. Is some somebody asked me to kill the cat? <laughs> Interesting, <laughs> because he has to invent a story. I mean, he is he, is hearing that the cat is dead, but it, it doesn't know it, it was something he read. Of course, yes. it is. A, yeah, I know. I, I, I explanation. Kind of, it's more more sophisticated than that. Yeah, so, no, no, I, I totally and I and I and certainly. Um, yeah, I recommend anyone reading the paper. And, and also, I mean, I think that there's, right, like anything, I mean, I, like, it seems like there's elements of that glimpses into sort of insights of, yeah, I mean, it's a very fascinating model. of. of and, and it goes further because, um, you know, and, and that was the, the, um, the special relativity, but there is a general relativity. The space-time is curved by masses and gravity, but it is exactly the same for the brain. So yeah. I show that an activated node of the brain it has a mass, a virtual mass, in fact, there is a mass if you consider cell swelling, but let's forget that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, so you can model, I mean, my, my pseudo-diffusion, relativistic pseudo-diffusion model is, is basically assuming that the, the amount of activation is linked to a mass. So if you have a strong activation, you have a big mass, and this activity of the brain is curbing the space-time, so directing where the action potentials flow. And where's the action potential flow? They activate the knots. They curve the brain space time. So it's exactly as in the, in the universe. And you can also model it uh, in, in, with that. I mean, uh, that's my simulation show that you can, uh, with this D star, this pseudo division coefficient, depending on the value, you have the short connections and the long connections, you can obtain results very similar to the connection which have been observed in vegetative patients, fully awake uh, people, and so on. So there is a gradation of connection. I get exactly the same pattern. 
Interesting. So as a proof of concept, I said, if now with my simulation, I, I over activate one area of the brain, could I suddenly reactivate a network? That's what my equation show with I mean, the relativity equations. But I did the experiment <laughs> in rats. So I talked before about this rat anesthetized or this like yeah. unconscious. Yes. So when you stimulate the central medium nucleus of the thalamus, suddenly the rats get awake. So basically what you do is that you resuscitate all the connections between the different brain areas. So each brain area is working independently, but by, by doing that, you connect regions which are not connected. Okay. So this, this is what this model is, is, is uh, suggesting. So you see it's, it's far reaching. And, and uh, in, in the Einstein equation, in, uh, he added in 1917, what is now called a lambda, the cosmologic constant, because at that time, his theory was predicting the universe could uh, extend or, or collapse. To have a static, a stable universe, he did that. But later, it was discovered that the universe is expanding. So then he said it was a big mistake to have this constant. But if you rework this constant in, in my model, this constant, plays a very important role. It is explaining how brain, different brain connections interact. So basically how social interactions take place in, in one brain. So you see, I mean, it's a full book I'm writing on that. Yeah. There's, I yeah. mean, uh, you, you cannot stop me when I have an uh, idea. <laughs> I'm looking forward to, to, to reading that, definitely. But um, you know, what I, I, I hope, you know, uh, as I told you for the IVIM, for diffusion MRI, I have, uh, I had a lot of critics, which were good because it, it helped me to make progress. But you know, it's like uh, not neuroscience, uh, as we know it today, people are trying to explain um, the functioning of the brain, either using mathematical models, such as uh, uh, Flintstone, for instance, uh, with the free energy, yeah. or yeah. Uh, looking at all the small action potentials and uh, trying to model the activity of the, everything. And what I, I I usually say to, to this is that my model doesn't care about what's going on in individual neurons. And the example I say is that to predict, uh, to, the, the, to forecast uh, the tidal waves in the sea, so there's a high wave, and you, you have a, the Newton's equation, Einstein's yeah. equation, you don't care about the movement of each water molecule. In yeah. fact, you, can, you cannot even do it because right. there are so many molecules that don't have the power in terms of calculation, yes. and you don't even have the models. Yes. Um, so we, we don't understand what is liquid water very well. So, so this means that we need, of course, to understand how neurons are connected and how they work and, and all of that. That's very important. But at the same time, to have a global approach is like a dual concept. It's not in opposition. Yeah, yeah, but I know. It's very, it's complementary in the sense that you can't it's complementary. Completely from yeah. bottom up. You have to sort of like, you know, yes. capture. But where I am afraid about how people my, our colleagues will react to that. You know, there is a saying that, you know, with general relativity is the physics of the universe and so on. And uh, quantum mechanics is the physics of uh, nuclei, atoms, and so on. But uh, in black holes, for instance, I talk a lot about that in, in my book. Um, you, at some point, you have to mix the two. You have to, to play with balls, but yeah. nobody has succeeded so far in a convincing model in physics. Yeah. But Brian Green said, uh, well, when you when you want to talk about general relativity in a workshop uh, dedicated to quantum mechanics, it's the same as lighting a, a fire camp in an explosive uh, factory. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I, I hope <laughs> this will not happen. 
Where's my, where's my model? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it would be it's going to be interesting to see how how it evolves. Right, definitely. Um, yeah, and it's just a suggestion, of course. I don't want to say it's correct everything, but it's just a new way to look at uh, as a brain connectome at least. We'll we'll leave that at that. And and uh, I, I one thing I just wanted to circle back to before we conclude, and that yes. is just sort of the the thought of so you're going to high field and and. You know, there's you're constantly pushing the envelope of of what MRI could do. So, what is your vision? What do you think is? I mean, how, what will MRI look like in in 20 years or 40 years or, or fMRI for that matter? What do you think? What do you think are the limits? And well, I don't know who said the problem with uh, uh, with with the forecasting is the future. <laughs> of course, it's uh, difficult, but. The immediate, I would say, goals, I think, is to scan the brain at, at a mesoscale yeah. where we can identify. My idea is that we have an alphabet of basic function on the cortex, right? Uh, so uh, there are colons, there are layers, but this organization is well understood in, uh, in the visual cortex, but not so much in the other areas of the brain. So if we could have some uh, ideas about why this is that in that areas are different functionally linked to something which is different about the cells are organized in 3d like in the dna molecule and it's a, it's a special organization of the dna which is encoding something right the genetic code so i i believe that we have i don't know how many 100 200 basic functions which are genetically programmed and uh, and the cells are organized in a, in a such a way that they do this job yep. um for instance, you know, QR, QR codes, it's uh, trendy now, uh, even for COVID in France, uh, for, to check your, your vaccination status and everything. So yes. everybody knows now what is a QR code. But yeah. you cannot read a QR code. A human brain, the humans have designed a QR code, but they cannot read it. Yeah, you can. It's only computers because yeah. we don't have the circuits. And even if you learn, you cannot do it. Yeah. So, well, that's so, interesting. So you see, uh, so there are only some things we can do. Now, if you give an iPhone or don't want to, or a Galaxy or whatever brand to a to a kid, in a in very quickly it can make sense of, of the of the smartphone, uh, and and make something about it. But yeah. there is no special area for smartphones yet in the brain, <laughs> and certainly no genes. So it's just the combination of these different uh, elementary blocks which are used together through the fibers. So we need also to see the fibers, the connections at a very high level. Increasing spatial and temporal resolution I think is a priority. And, uh, and, and the dream is if we could see activation flowing in the fibers. And I think your, your work on the, on the, the Lawrence force might, might be a way to do that. But I think to succeed, we need also to have very high spatial resolution. We usually consider space, but time is also important. And, Something else is uh, spectroscopic imaging. So looking at sodium, uh, oxygen 17, you have to inject, but, and uh, you looking at metabolite, neurotransmitters. So far, the images are, I mean, when you do imaging with that, it's, it's really coarse. Right. But you might get images with a resolution we have today with water at 1.5 Tesla uh, by going to 11.7. So I think um, spectroscopy might uh, get uh, a chance to be more useful than it is today. Right. I mean, right. You need sensitivity. And I, and I think there's a lot of room to grow in sensitivity with spectroscopy. But like resolution, even it seems that you're back to diffusion again. You're, you're up against this limit, like maybe of 50 microns. Um, mm. 
in some sense because of the diff- you know the diffusion limits. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, so but that anyway, that could be useful. Yeah, and uh, and uh, then there is uh, hopefully a big surprise. I think it's uh, Freeman uh, Tyson who said that uh, uh, the revolution, the tool tool driven revolution, is to find new things which will have to be explained. Yeah, I like this. Yeah. So, my, my great hope is that we will discover something that we, we have no idea, like for diffusion, uh, acute stroke, and what diffusion and isotropy in the white matter. That was completely unexpected. Yep. So I really hope that with uh, your and magnet and our magnet, they are brother magnets or sister magnets, <laughs> yeah, we yeah, find exactly. something <laughs> that we have no idea today, and then that will occupy many people <laughs> to understand yeah. what we see. <laughs> and that's an important point with all of, I mean, it seems like MRI has sort of been driven by that, like technology, just sort of uh, continuously advancing and trying new methods and, and, and applying new things and then finding new new phenomena. Then, so it's very, it's very technology uh, mm-hmm. driven in that regard. Okay. All right. Well, uh, very last question. I, you know, there was so much more to get to, I, you know, but uh, you know, you have so many other interests, but I think, I think from, and you know, like you're, you just to mention briefly, you're, you're accomplished piano player, you're accomplished photographer, and, and you've even had a hobby in, in uh, developing weather forecasting. And uh, uh, so, which was all really impressive as far as that's concerned. Yeah, many hobbies. <laughs> yeah. So what is your, so just to conclude then, what, what would be your advice to, to young researchers? Um, Starting out, you know, they they're trying to get a sense of, you know, what sort of tactics. I think, uh, yeah, uh, that's that's good. Uh, I'm not a philosopher, okay. <laughs> so my first first advice would be, you should stay uh, in your mind as a kid, ask questions that nobody is asking, like why is the sky blue? Yeah, well, we know, and this is how I started the weather forecasting, by the way, because. In the, in the book, uh, my, my, my grandfather was a gardener. And in this book, it was written, when the sky is red at, uh, uh, at the end of the day, it should be nice weather the next day. Yes. I was shocked. You know, how could, could that be true? Hey, it right. is true. It is true. But I had to go to buy and read the many, uh, many books. And high levels, this is how I learned the mathematics and differential equations by myself, you know, to, to understand that. But it, it is true. It is true. So be a child uh, and keep your eyes open. That's the priority. Then don't um, take for granted everything you read, uh, especially you now with internet, you can find anything you want. <laughs> and, and, and dogma. So if you feel that there's something which is uh, weird or Try to try to understand and, and develop. But maybe another advice, which is basically a lesson that I learned by myself, is that you should be persistent. If you believe you you are right and you have a great idea, don't give up. Even if people are caught attacking you or saying you are wrong, and if maybe you are wrong, okay. If you know you are wrong, you should stop <laughs> immediately. <laughs> But if you're not convinced yourself, you should just keep up being. But if you think, no, I'm sure I'm right. And uh, then, uh, I mean, I, I could see even for diffusion, even for diffusion, people say, no way. I, I mean, I, I remember, I don't, I will not say the name, but some people, when I gave talks at very beginning in the 80s and uh, top level scientists, no way, no, you cannot measure diffusion in the brain, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and a few years later, they were all working on diffusion MRI. <laughs> 
<laughs> so IVI to 20 years diffusion fMRI is still not uh, accepted by everybody. My new theory would take uh, half a century probably. So, <laughs> yeah. so if you believe you have ideas which uh, are correct, don't give up and uh, be persistent. Yeah. That's that would be my three advices. That's that's great advice. Um, yeah, keeping yeah right, childlike and and don't right, don't take the dog bite because sometimes we just agree on things and we don't the, collectively and we don't know why. And then you come in and you realize, oh, that wasn't really the case anyway. So yeah, and then persistence. That, I love it. I love the just amazing advice. And okay, all right. Well, this was this was awesome, and I really really thank you for for spending the time to to talk about all your work to give. To give the field uh, a little bit of sense of history and uh, you know the early days with diffusion, the B factor, and everything up to IVIM diffu uh, diffusion changes with activation in the future. So thank you very much for coming on. I really appreciate it. I thank you a lot, Peter, for for this kind invitation. I enjoyed it a lot. I mean, you 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 know how to ask really <laughs> great questions <laughs> and to push people in the limits. So, uh, thank you so much. And, uh, really, it was really enjoyable. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. Neurosalience is brought to you by the Organization for Human Brain Mapping. This week's episode was produced by Ekaterina Dobrikova and Kevin Sitek.